0: what a promise one day there will be no more tears no more hunger no more thirst this side of heaven you never promised to take away our pain but you promised to give us yourself Holy Spirit you're living in us you the one who illuminates the word who causes that which is sharper than a two-edged sword to penetrate. We pray that you would do that now in every heart, in every mind. Wherever we are, Lord, this morning, we pray that you would draw near to us and do that work in our hearts and minds that only you can do that would transform us, change us, cause us to become the people you've made us to be. That for the sake of your glory we might extend the wonderful gospel of jesus christ this we pray in your holy name amen before we stand for the reading of god's word which is going to be the conclusion of peter's sermon at pentecost and then the response i want to talk a little bit about how a sermon is put together when i went to covenant seminary in 1994 I had the great privilege of studying under Brian Chappell, who was the homiletics professor at the time. Homiletics is the study of how to preach the Word of God. And then Brian became the president of Covenant Seminary. He wrote a book titled Christ-Centered Preaching, which you see constantly from this pulpit as every sermon doesn't end with us in our own effort trying to earn our way to heaven, but with the great dependence upon the Lord absolute dependence upon the lord a couple of things that brian chapel taught me early or all of us early was to pay attention to the conclusion he said in fact you should write the conclusion first because the conclusion is the last thing the people are going to hear before they leave he also said in order to help you write a conclusion that matters at the top of your page write two words, so what? I think that's actually really important for preachers, that we realize we're not just giving information like a history lecture. We're actually bringing the very word of God expounded, prayed over, meant to be applied by the powerful, illuminating work of the Spirit. So what is a great question to have at the top because it makes certain that we're not just talking about things that we can discuss intellectually, but we know that with every sermon, as the Spirit moves, there comes an application, which means there's action to be taken. As important as it is for a pastor to write, so what, at the top of his page, it is as important for you to do the same thing. So what? Not just Sunday after Sunday, but every time you open the Word of God, or listen to a preacher on a podcast, or participate in a Bible study. So what? Two words. When we, as we stand for the reading of God's word, I'm going to start by concluding with the final sentence that Luke records Peter giving at Pentecost in his first sermon. I'm gonna start with that sentence, and then I'm gonna read what happened in response to that sermon. That Peter preached. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading from the book of Acts, chapter 2. Again, I'm gonna start at verse 36 and then read through verse 42. Peter, carried along by the Holy Spirit, preached these words, concluding with this sentence Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That was his final sentence. Now here's what happened. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, "...for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself." And with many other, thing, many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, "...save yourself from this crooked generation." So those who received his word were baptized." And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42 And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. His final sentence of his first sermon Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus Christ did not die for a world that was mildly sick. Jesus Christ was not sent to this earth, as the father demonstrated his own love for us, to die for a world that was mildly ill. He sent his son to die for a people that were God-haters, everyone that he'd ever made. They had rebelled in the beginning, original sin. And from the pages of scripture to the end of scripture, we see the incredible impact of sin on the world. Sin that we see as we look around and sin that we see as we look inside. Jesus Christ did not die for a world that was mildly sick, but for a world full of hate. Hate towards others who look different than us, but also hate for those who look just like us. Hate between brothers where one kills the other, the first family. A world where wives and husbands lie to each other, betray each other. A world where children throughout history have been sacrificed to Melech a false god. The world where children are sold into slavery, where acts so heinous that we don't even want to mention are performed, all seen by the God who made these people. To a world where races of people in our country and all over the world are treated unjustly, oppressed, kept down, where systems are put in place and then sometimes even justified by the very word of God that I'm preaching from. Jesus Christ did not die for a world that was mildly ill. He died for a world for his people, a people with distorted views about their own bodies that lead to unthinkable acts against oneself and against others. He died for greed and selfishness and lust and power. And the pages of scripture show us that what we see now, very, very abundantly clear, is not new, but has existed since the fall of man. The world is full of evil people who aren't mildly ill, but all who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. We saw it with Cain and Abel. We saw it with Saul and David. Saul so frightened that this king, this young man that he witnessed slay Goliath is now going to overtake his throne. The one who served him by playing music that would calm the troubled spirit that was on him is now being pursued that Saul might kill David. So great is Saul's hatred of David that when David escapes him and Doeg the Edomite knows where he is and knows that there was a priest that helped him, orders that those 85 priests are slaughtered. Not just the priest, but all of their wives and all of their children and all of their livestock. Wipe them out. Saul, the first king of the people Of Israel. From David's line, there would come another king. This would be the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one in whose name we have salvation and the name that we pray. But when he comes upon the earth as a baby, there would be another king. A king, upon hearing of his birth, sees that his powerful throne is threatened, and so he then insists that every male child under the age of two is murdered, ripped from their parents' arms, slayed so that the one who is going to eventually have that power could be extinct. The world is very evil, and it's very dangerous, and it is because of the reality of sin It is because of the reality of original sin corrupting all of us. In the language which we use in our tradition, we talk about mankind being totally depraved. But when we live in seasons of pretty moderate prosperity and peace, it's easy to minimize the reality of what that sin really means. But when we see sin revealing its ugly head in acts of incredible violence and injustice and in so many things we read about but don't see that are equally heinous and evil, it's then that we realize my problem and the world's problem with sin isn't just a mild brokenness, It's not just a mild interruption of my peace and prosperity that I want. It is something that has infected and therefore affected everything. We teach the doctrine of total depravity, which the theologian John Calvin articulated in a way that was so helpful. What is total depravity? It's important to understand because it's true of every person God has made. Total depravity means radical corruption. It means radical in the sense of the the origin of the word radical, meaning core. In other words, every part of us has been touched by sin. No part of us is left untouched by sin. That's true of every human being. We have a Savior that did not come to die for a people that's mildly corrupted, that's mildly ill. But as Paul said to the church of Ephesus, he came to a world where we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We weren't sick. We had a heart that was dead. It could not beat for God. We were following the course of this world The prince of the power of the air, that's spiritual warfare, that's Satan. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among the sons of disobedience in which we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind that were corrupted because all of us, all of us and all of us was touched by sin. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ. Total depravity does not mean utter depravity. Utter depravity means that we will be as wicked as we could possibly be. And that's not what total depravity means. I could be Far more wicked than I am, and I am far more wicked than I know. You could be far more wicked than you are, but you are far more wicked than you think. Your children the same, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together in Christ. And what that means is this heart that was dead suddenly began to beat for God. That heart which was dead was cut. It was cut by the Spirit of God, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And for all who are his people, we began to feel that cut. And we began to see the truth about mankind and the truth about who we are as part of mankind. We came to the end of ourselves and said, I can only be rescued by the living God. I can only be saved by Christ Jesus. And he's done everything necessary that I could live forever. But what he had to go through that I might live forever must never be forgotten. Peter ends his sermon with this Christ, Jesus, whom you crucified. Friends, that's why every sermon in this church speaks of the cross and the resurrection and the rain, not just in the spring as we celebrate Holy Week. Christ Jesus, whom we crucified, this is what Jesus had to die for. After hearing this sermon, by the way, this week, go back and read it. It's, it's like a minute and a half long and 3,000 people were saved. Read it, you'll see what Peter does. He goes back to the word of God. He quotes scripture, but behind the scenes, the Holy Spirit is moving. And behind the scenes, the Holy Spirit is doing what he and he alone can do. Behind the scenes, the Holy Spirit is answering the so what. And the hearts of the people were cut. Do you see that in the text? Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Every time we enter into this sanctuary or tune in live stream or listen to a podcast or read the word of God in our own devotions, every time we should come as a people expecting God to cut us to the heart. And when God cuts us to the heart, He's not doing so just to give us more intellectual information about this book. He is cutting us to the heart to do what he and he alone can do to change us, that we might cry out, Lord, what must we do? What must I do? Every Sunday and every day of the week, cry out, Lord, cut my heart. Cut to the heart. Well, how does he do it? Well, you see it here, verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter told them to repent. Repent means to change directions. It means to turn. And he was telling them to turn to Jesus, to be baptized for your sins. And they were, about 3,000 of them. Peter continued to give them other words about the promises of God. Then it says in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This passage and the few that follow it are where we're gonna anchor this summer. And we're gonna spend the first few weeks of the summer focusing on what they devoted themselves to in regards to the word. Then we're gonna talk about the fellowship. And then we're gonna end the summer by talking about the prayers, going from this place to other parts of scripture to see these extraordinary workings of God through the ordinary means that he's always given his church. So first it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. But what was the apostles' teaching? The first teaching they heard was Peter's sermon. And then from there on, the very words of God would be taught to the disciples, or by the disciples to the people. Remember this, that when the apostles spoke the words, they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's 2 Peter chapter 1. The Holy Spirit that was poured out at Pentecost is now moving in each of these apostles to proclaim the word, and the people have devoted themselves to it. What are you devoting yourself to right now. What's occupying your time in terms of what you're reading, what you're watching? The only thing that has the power to truly cut you to the heart is the Word of God. Other things will move you, I'm not saying that, but the Word of God is different than anything else. The Word of God, we're told in Hebrews 4, is sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates deep into who we are, It does a dissection of our life that we might be transformed by the wonder of who he is. And that's true of all of God's word. Instructing Timothy about the word of God, Paul gives us these great two verses. Now, children, I want you to listen. I want you to listen to four initials, T-R-C-T. I want you to hear those. And I want you to remember those. T-R-C-T. Timothy heard Paul say, and was carried along by the Spirit to write these words, all Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, all Scripture is God-breathed. The people writing it were carried along by the Spirit. The people hearing it were being impacted by the Spirit. All Scripture is god breathe. It's God's word, not man's. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, T, reproof, R, correction, C, and training in righteousness, T, T T-R-C-T. And each of those words matter. As the disciples led the people and the people devoted themselves to the teaching of the disciples, they were constantly hearing their teaching, and as they were hearing the Word of God, the Word of God was doing time and time again the thing that only it can do. It was cutting to the heart, and it was teaching them, it was rebuking them, it was correcting them, and it was training them in righteousness. Why? So what? So that they, the people of God, would become complete, equipped for every good work. The world needs the church to do the good works that God has equipped us to do against all forms of evil, all forms of injustice, all forms of racism, all forms of favoritism, all forms of lust, all forms of greed, all forms of selfishness, Every vile act that this world has invented, created as the church filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been taught that we should engage. The way it works is that when we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, we can know for certain that we are going to receive teaching we are going to receive reproof, we are going to receive correction, and we're going to receive training. And that is going to be true of you and true of me for the rest of my life until Christ returns. All scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, T, reproof, R, correction, C, and training, T. What's the difference between reproof and correction? This is important. Reproof is a rebuke. And all of us, this side of heaven, have been impacted in the core of who we are by sin. That means we're silent when we shouldn't be. We support things we shouldn't, sometimes in silence. It means sometimes we're not silent when we should be. It means that we believe things that we shouldn't believe and look at things we shouldn't look at. It means we fail to love as we ought to love. It means that we commit sins of commission and sins of omission. And when we devote ourselves to the disciples' teaching, we will receive reproof. The Holy Spirit is going to say, Mark, that was a wrong thought. You're endorsing a wrong way of thinking. You are not acting as you should. You're not engaging as you ought. You're not showing compassion. You're not being courageous. Reproof is the Spirit's work with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to cut and penetrate. And when he does, it's grace. When he does, it's grace. When he does, I see and you see that I need to change. And it's the word of God and the power of the spirit that brings about that change. Correction is the change. Reproof is the rebuke. This is wrong. Correction is the change. The spirit-filled work that's cutting deep into me. It's the difference between confession and repentance. Peter didn't say when they cried out, having been cut to the heart, what shall we do? Confess your sins and be baptized. He said, Repent. Confession is part of repentance, but we can confess with no true desire to repent. And when that happens, and it does in all of us, we need to repent of our repentance. That is a reproof, to repent of our repentance. And that looks like us as the people of God, humbly going before the Lord as David did and saying, search me and know me. And when you pray that prayer with humility, not simply placing your ideas in that vacuum, but asking God to fill it that you might see clearly who you are and clearly who he is when he reproves you in his grace he will transform you by his grace as well. And when he does, that change begins to happen. And in Christ, we have the freedom to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I'm sorry, I didn't act. I'm sorry, I didn't speak. I'm sorry, I spoke and I shouldn't have. This is alive. This T-R-C-T, this, the apostles teaching, God's word is alive and the spirit moves. So what? When the spirit moves and we're cut to the heart, the people of God cry out, what must I do? We don't cry out in isolation from God, seeking then to clean ourselves up and correct ourselves so that God will see us with favor. We cry out, Lord have mercy. And as the Lord has mercy and begins to change us, giving us eyes to see more clearly, ears to hear more faithfully and a will filled with his spirit to act as we should, The church looks the way the church should look. When the church doesn't do what the apostles are teaching, then they will conform to the pattern of the world. And when the church conforms to the pattern of the world, the witness of our primary identity is dimmed, it is damaged, and it can be destroyed but by the grace of God and his faithfulness, he reproves us, he rebukes us, he corrects us, and he trains us. My friends who are here and those who are watching, I wanna encourage you that you probably wouldn't be here and you probably wouldn't be watching and worshiping with us if you didn't believe this to be the living word of God. But believing it is the word of God, and then coming regularly with the expectation of being cut to the heart, so that you and I will cry out all the time, what shall we do, is very, very different than just saying, yeah, I believe every word of this to be true, so does Satan. God alone can change what needs to be changed. We as people, filled with the Holy Spirit, are the agents of that change, which he ordinarily seeks to use. But when we conform to the pattern of the world, instead of being transformed by this and the work of the Spirit, and the renewing of our mind, not once, but ongoing, when we fail to do that, the church is not attractive to a lost and hurting world. But when we abide in Christ and seek to live that kind of life, we'll read what happens next in the church. And the church becomes a people filled with the spirit that is so bright, so bright, that people want to know, where is your hope? What hope do you have? My hope is in Christ, the one I crucified, the one who died for me. So what? Because of what he's done that I might live forever, I want to do everything he's called me to to bring him glory. I wanna humbly submit myself day in and day out to his teaching, to his reproof, to his correction, and to his training in righteousness. One day, the pains of this world that we see now, and will see until Christ returns in one way or another, one day they will be gone and we will feast with him and his people. Until then, he's given us this food, he's given us this meal, he's given us himself, and his spirit is in us. Today, you've been taught. I'm confident that you long to be reproved, and I'm confident that you long to receive correction And I'm confident that as that comes and you are trained to be like Christ, you will find the greatest joy of your heart being satisfied in Him. He died for you, you crucified Him, and so did I. Let's repent, all of us. Let's repent from our repentance. And let's move as he calls us to move, to make known the name of Jesus. Father in heaven, it's not honest to describe anything in this world that you've created that has been so stained by the fall without us seeing it as your word says it is. And Lord, we hurt, This is a dark time for all of us. We have confidence that you will accomplish what you seek to accomplish. We have confidence in your word and in your spirit, but we also know that we have a very real enemy seeking to devour us even now, seeking to take the words that have been preached and proclaimed and read and to to scatter them on soil that's not good. We pray, Lord, that you would do a work that plants these seeds in good soil that we truly would expect to be cut to the heart, not just today, but every day as we open your word. Lord, as we sing in closing this service, would you do that work, applying deeply the things that have been proclaimed that we might be made different today for your glory's sake, in Jesus' name, amen.